This is the Power to Podcast, show 152. Especially with reluctant writers, um, the voice to text is a great place to start. So um, I have, especially for our younger students who aren't the best typists, so we have them just mute, mute their camera and they just like tell us the story or tell the topic. And I think once they realize like there's a thousand errors, right? But at least they're getting those ideas down. And then we have a little bit of a framework to work from. Welcome to a real world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Herman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Turkey Man Rogers. Matt, we this is coming out, uh, should be right during the holiday break, the, the winter holiday break, the New Year break, um, but we are recording this leading right into the Thanksgiving day break. What is your favorite part of Thanksgiving? Traffic, usually dreary weather. Uh, Black Friday shopping. No, in, in reality, I think the answer has to be food and family, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be in those realms. So this year is going to be a little different. It's uh, with Kristen expecting it's going to be our last, we'll say, quiet Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very exciting. So we are hosting this year and um, excited this to be the last one uh, without a, a kid to, to tote around. What about yeah, you? Abs- absolutely. Next year you'll get to lay the lay your baby next to the turkey and compare size. Oh, we, we've we've done that a couple times. Um, my favorite part, I I love turkey. I love stuffing. Uh, is the eating definitely? I'm a pie guy. I would take pie over cake any day. So I love the pies. Uh, but I love Thanksgiving break and the day because. You're, I'm with the same family, my extended family that I'm with for Christmas, but there's no pressure, right? There's no gifts, which gift giving is fun. I love giving gifts to my nieces and seeing my kids get gifts. Like I love that part of Christmas, but Thanksgiving is like, you just hang out, watch football, drink some wine, drink some beer, sit on the couch, eat some food, eat some dessert. It's just, it's just great quality time. And the other thing I like about it is everybody in America except for some first responders and some of some of those essential workers. But in theory, everybody's off. It's a day for everyone together. Uh, religion doesn't matter. None of that matters, right? It's just, it's a day for, for everyone. So I am, I was one of those people. I was very against the stores that started creeping Black Friday into Thanksgiving. I feel like that's kind of gone now. I think they've gone back to the traditional Black Friday, 4 a.m. kind of thing. So that's, that's what I love about Thanksgiving. So we didn't talk about Thanksgiving at all in our recording tonight. We had two uh, great educators on, great writers, uh, great teachers of writing, Megan Sheriff and and Gretchen Gales. And and we talked a lot about writing. And uh, you very openly talked about your opinion and and your love for writing. So so what what did you take away from this conversation? I think it's 
it's one of the hardest subject areas to teach for a few reasons. First off, uh, a kid who's developing their reading skills are going to obviously struggle with writing because writing is the culmination of their reading and uh, comprehension. If those skills are not strong, their writing can't be strong. There is no way to just jump that. So it is at the end of the line of success uh, when it comes to instruction. And it is so hard to provide feedback in a timely and meaningful way because you put all this time in and you write a suggestion and you, you notate and, and adjust and edit. And they're like, oh, I just I got tired there and I, I didn't put my best effort in or um, I just was ready to be done, whatever the case may be. So I love this conversation because I think it is a really powerful skill. I also think it writing and supporting writing actually leans into the best versions of teaching, conferencing, kind of discussing, adjusting on the fly. I think that processing is what we love as educators, but to get through that with 25 kids is daunting. Mm -hmm. And to then be left at the end of that to grade and, and give feedback. Oh boy. I am. It is not my strong suit. I'll put it that way. I, I agree with that. I think that our guests tonight really gave us some valuable perspectives on how to approach different strategies in terms of teaching, writing, in terms of what students can process and what students can think about. And I, I, I really thought it was a great conversation. I, I mean, I, I truly feel like that every time I, I, we're so blessed to have the guests that we've had on the show. And every, I, I just feel like almost every time we walk away with something we've never really talked about before in depth. And so I, I really think Gretchen and Megan bring that to our, our podcast tonight. So without any further delay, I'd love to hear from Teach Better and then bring Megan and Gretchen right into the podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Megan and Gretchen. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. Um, and so to kick things off, I would just like each of you to officially introduce yourselves, let our audience know where you are coming from. Give us a snapshot of your career uh, in education as, as well as, as how you two have met and, and formed your professional relationship too. Gretchen, I'll let you go first if you want. Sure. Um, I'm Gretchen Gales. I am certified in English 6 through 12. Um, and I'm also a content and copywriter. I do, as Meg alluded to earlier, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I do a little bit of everything. So I love to kind of bounce around. And But ultimately, no matter what, I end up coming back and wanting to mentor kids and come up with something new to keep them engaged. All right. I'm Meg Sheriff. Um, I am from Richmond, Virginia, as well as Gretchen. And uh, I grew up right outside of D.C., so um, my first school was um, in Hyattsville, Maryland, and we had 81 languages represented, um, so it was a really diverse school, and I knew nothing about teaching. I was an English and Spanish double major. I was a provisional teacher, so uh, it was definitely a trial-by-fire situation, but I've been in K-12 for just about 20 years. Um, I'm in high school where all of my sons also attend right now. I teach 10 Advanced and Mass Comm. 
Um, I'm also a student myself. I'm a doctoral student um, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I've owned a tutoring business since my boys were little, stayed home with them for about 10 years. Um, and post-COVID, we moved to a fully online platform. Uh, so we work with students um, mostly between like third and 12th grade, uh, primarily on writing, literacy, reading. So I, I want to dig into, into you know, the, the two sides of, of what you just shared, your, your teaching career and, and how you interact with students in the classroom. But I also am very curious and anxious to hear about your tutoring business and, and how you work with students there as well. So what would you say is a common thread between the classroom and, and the tutoring uh, experience with students that you feel is really a foundation in the success for what you offer to students in a classroom, as well as the, the tutoring experience. I'll go, Gretchen, then you can pick up if you want. I, I would sure. say across the board, kids need to be engaged. If kids are not locked in or excited about what you're doing there, it's hard to really get buy-in. Um, so obviously that's hard to bring on the daily, but I definitely think if there are relationships there and you're able to connect with students, they're much more inclined to get excited about writing an essay. Um, so I would say that has been a challenge to try to do online. Uh, that's why we moved to these small learning communities to try to foster that sense of collaboration. Um, I noticed uh, post COVID, um, our students, even if you put them in a small group, like a reading group, a lit circle at school, I walked over one day and there was a group of students and nobody was talking. And I was like, hey guys, part of your grade is to like have a discussion. And they said, Michelle, if we are discussing, and I looked down and they were all typing to each other in a shared Google doc. And they were, you know, two feet from each other. And I was like, where am I? What is happening? So I think that has been like the thread for me, especially uh, post-pandemic, is just relationship building and making sure kids are engaged. I, it is increasingly difficult, I think, to hold students' attention. Um, even in this last year, I noticed it even more. Um, so that's kind of the thread that I see. I definitely agree with Meg. Um, in my career as like a content writer as well as a teacher, Keeping kids engaged is really important in order to ensure that they do absorb that content. And I think I came at it with an advantage of when you're pitching stories, you have to pitch it from an angle of why is this relevant right now in this moment? And normally it's something that you have to follow, like a breaking news story, and you have to relate it to something that is happening that is within the pop culture setting. And so that's what I often did in my lessons as well, like brought something up the kids would, would have heard about, might have an opinion about. Um, I was known for doing a lot of theatrics in my classes as well. And so I know a lot of teachers are like, well, I can't juggle, I can't do this. You know, you don't show up to a show. Well, sometimes I just made it into a show because um, I was a lot more entertained because I find if I'm entertained, the kids are entertained because I'm having fun and, you know, they're coming down with me. I'm like, you're going to have fun. You're going to like it today. So um, one time I was sharing different lyrics to compare, like maybe talk about metaphors, similes, figure of speech, all the other stuff. And I used to take chorus and did a lot of stuff with music as well. And so I literally sang it out loud and made some of them sing it with me, um, especially the ones who are particularly like want to talk and want to be the center of attention. I'm like, this is your time to shine. And that way I'm not the only one up here. Everyone's entertained and no one's going to fall asleep if they're all singing Girl on Fire. <laughs> and even when you're working with, with uh, a small group of students, even one-on-one -on -one in that tutoring, in that tutoring environment, how would you say the engagement 
how would you say the engagement approach is the same or different or is it just as important or not as important when when you're working with students in that one-on-one or even small group basis in a tutoring environment I think naturally, if you're working with a kid one-on-one, there's like nowhere to hide, right? There's no like back row to dip behind. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I think one of the things that we mentioned with the small groups, and this is an ongoing battle, is to ask the kids just to have their cameras on. And that's tough in middle school. Like they don't want to see themselves. It's awkward, right? But so sometimes on Google Meet, they'll turn themselves into like a fish or whatever, all the things. But I I think the biggest thing is, um, and I know Gretchen practices this too, is that we do a lot of like when they're writing, they're reading their passages back out loud. Um, And I always tell them you're going to catch like 90% of your mistakes if you're hearing your own writing. Um, So I think sometimes the engagement just comes naturally because of the activities that we are building in and having them. They're not just writing, but then they're reading back through it. We're looking at word choice, things like that. Um, And I think a lot of times too, just kind of like Gretchen said, bringing in things that we know that they care about. The Fortnite update is all the rage right now if you are a middle school or a high schooler. Um, So I know like my uh, closed down in my small group last night was um, persuade me why the Fortnite updates all, is it worth all the hype. Um, so they were much more inclined to write about that than the persuasive topic that I had on deck before that. So I think just knowing some of the things they care about, you know, can definitely go a long ways. I think that's one of the challenges when it comes to writing in general is yeah. their motivation is not always just do I want to write or not. It's the mm-hmm. the driving question of the writing. Right does that pique their interest? Because they may have the ability and the resources to cite sources and put that out there. And they may struggle with that idea of, I don't really feel like doing this right now, or a topic that just does not inspire them to elaborate at all. So where, when, when you come across that roadblock. I'm sure they claim uh, writer's block uh, more soon than they actually have it. What are your methods to take a less preferred writing topic and get the quality of work out of them? I mean, I know I have some tools. I use Gretchen. I'm sure you do too. I, I think for me, especially with reluctant writers, um, the voice to text is a great place to start. So um, I have, especially for our younger students who aren't the best typists, so we have them just mute, mute their camera and they just like tell us the story or tell the topic. And I think once they realize like there's a thousand errors, right, but at least they're getting those ideas down. And then we have a little bit of a framework to work from. Uh, that has definitely worked for me. Um, Gretchen, anything else that you do if they're not wanting to talk about something? I definitely, so for whenever I did journals or any kind of free writing, I would encourage them because a lot of them would be like, I don't have anything to talk about. Like, you know, sometimes I get that way too. Even as a professional writer, I have days and you can ask any writer and they're like, you know, they might tell you one thing like, oh yes, I'm always inspired. No, we're not. (laughs) We are not inspired. Um, And I'm very open with kids about that of some days, all that's going through my head is I really want waffles. I want to go and play GTA five. I want to do like anything that comes to mind that they want to put down um, to just put it down on a piece of paper and really kind of dump those thoughts out. And a lot of the times you'll eventually get on a thread of a topic that does make sense and kind of brings you back to where you're supposed to be. And even if, even if it doesn't immediately your mind is still working. Your hands are still moving across the page or typing or whatever else. So something is still being done. Um, We pressure ourselves to be as productive and always create something perfect, which is another thing I see with a lot of kids of they want everything to be perfect immediately. 
so oftentimes I will demonstrate how messy my own writing is, both literally and figuratively. I think a lot of my kids related to me a lot because I have very messy handwriting, part to partly to do with I have Tourette's syndrome as well, and so that causes involuntary movements and noises, but it also has a couple other comorbid conditions as well, including dysgraphia, which is like basically really bad handwriting and you have a hard time with writing in general. And so I'm like, well, I just do it. Um, I have the prettiest journal on the planet, but not the prettiest handwriting, and that's okay. And it's hilarious. You can laugh at it. It is very ironic, but I still do it, and you should too, because I, I'm i still out there hitting goals, doing what I need to do, and I still do things I'm proud of, even if it doesn't look the way it quote-unquote should. I think that's a, a really awesome way to portray and also drive motivation as well to say, hey, you know, here's my my limiting factor that normally I have an easy out. I have an excuse to get out of this, and obviously I'm going to barrel right through it. Writing. Can I jump in real quick, Matt? Sure. So in relation to what you're talking about, where where is the balance for, for the two of you in terms of content versus uh, the, the skill you're working on? And what I mean by that is like, Personal narratives was very common in my fifth grade class. It was one of our units, right? We have to write a personal narrative. And some of our programs would have, write a personal narrative about a snow day, write a personal narrative about something, right? And I would explain to the, I, I would try to, as I became more experienced in my position, I realized that uh, I what I cared about was that they were writing in this style. And so a lot of times with personal narrative, it was, here are some ideas, but you can go any, any avenue you want. But I would also, at times, say, here's the prompt. You have to write about this topic. You have to do a personal narrative on this topic because you might be presented even just on a state test with this requirement. And if it says, write a personal narrative about blank, and you have no ideas, you can't recall anything, or you've truly never experienced it, a personal narrative is just a fictional story. Write a fictional story and pretend that it's something that could have realistically happened. So I guess what I'm saying is like, when you are targeting a specific writing skill or a specific writing genre, where do you balance focusing on that specific skill in relation okay. to the content that the students are are writing about? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely can answer this as an English teacher and then also as a journalism teacher. Mm -hmm. So um, I taught for a long time international baccalaureate classes, IB classes, um, and also AP classes. So obviously these are very test-driven courses. Um, but I practiced something called Rewrite to Mastery. And a teacher uh, that is on our faculty now taught me this when I first came to our county. And I love it. And a lot of teachers are like, oh, I'd never do that because I have 150 kids. And if they all keep rewriting, all I'm going to do is keep editing um, or keep grading rather. But I have found that only about 15% of kids will rewrite to Mastery. So if they write something and they don't like it, I'm like, well, then go ahead and rewrite it. We have a writing center at our school so our kids can go to peer writers and get feedback. I actually make that a quiz grade for them. And a lot of them can't stand that. And then they're like, oh my gosh, that was the best thing. It's a soft skill. They have to go in, make the appointment, meet. Um, but for me, I think taking like, like they're going to have that rubric. There's going to be things I'm looking for, but the opportunity that it's like an actual real writing assignment, like no, nobody ever just like, I tell them like JK Rowling's and just like hand over Harry Potter. And that was it, right? Like there were multiple iterations. So 
that's what I remind them. Like, it's never going to be right the first time. No one's going to get a hundred the first time. I, I wouldn't get a hundred. Gretchen's not going to get a hundred and she's a professional writer. So I think having that rewrite to mastery has helped a lot. Um, also, I create my own rubric. So even though there's like a state rubric and this is what they're getting to, um, I look for certain things. So if they're writing a personal narrative, maybe I'm just looking for sentence variety on that first narrative. Maybe I'm looking like, do you have compound sentences? Do you have complex? Are you mixing it up? Um, and it's hard for me, right? But I let all those capital letters go. If you have all your lowercase I, I might circle them, but I don't take off. Um, but then as the year goes on, like it's more progressive, right? So then I start looking for other things as it gets more complex. But I think if we hit our kids with like all the grammar right out of the gate, it just shuts them down, right? So eventually I want them to get there, but it, it's for me like gradual, like I'm looking for certain things and then it kind of grows on top of that. I'm definitely the same way where I would kind of test very specific lessons that maybe I revisited in a mini lesson or would kind of build upon the previous lesson with, okay, is everything capitalized? Is everything this, this, and this? Uh, I mostly taught a lot of students who struggled very deeply with written composition as well as reading comprehension. And so my main goal was mostly just to ensure they didn't feel defeated. Because at this point, when I taught, I'm mostly, I'm over it. I've been in this place for 13 years, and I am over it. So ensuring that they can get over, you know, get over the fence to the graduation line, hopefully not just for the sake of graduating, but also with a newfound appreciation of what stories can look like. Um, I would, like I said, focus in more on those specific grammatical lessons or other concepts before just, you know, taking out the red pen and being like, here's everything you did wrong. Uh, because, you know, even in my own life, even when I was, and I was a great student, you know, if they took out that red pen and, and went all over with it, it's like, who do they think they are? <laughs> and so I, I think of my own stubborn self, even when I was in school, and I'm like, how would little me react to this? And if little me would have reacted very badly and stubborn would have shut down, then they're probably going to do the same thing. I think it's very, very relatable. And we've all been in scenarios where we can place ourselves back, you know, transform mm -hmm. back to, to those feelings. And writing is so polarizing for kids. Um, now, I'm a, a fifth grade teacher. Ken formerly was a fifth grade teacher, but I taught fourth grade for a long time. And I felt like I had aspirations of working on skills that you're talking about. What I really needed to prioritize was could they generate enough lines to even provide feedback on? Mm -hmm. And finally, and Ken, you may be able to speak to this better at your you know, area of expertise, I'm finally feeling like I have developmentally appropriate kids to even consider revising. Like we are just at that phase where we can consider right. it because before, for the nine years I taught fourth grade, the pencil put the final period on that paper, that rough copy, there was no reason to rewrite it. Right. And so that's where for years, I would love to be going in and talking about adjustments and add-ons and what have you. They just didn't have the capacity to, right. to deal with that. And, and so I can totally understand that. I guess where I'm going with this is 
as we transition, writing and providing feedback is one of the most grueling, emotionally taxing as a teacher, and uh, hardest to be non-partial. I don't know if that's the right word, but I can take a poor writing and make it sound great as me as the author without realizing that I'm feeding suggestions of how I would do it. And then all right. of a sudden you have a class-wide uh, general writing prompt that everyone has. Where do you find yourself making sure how you would write it stays out of that and no influence when you are providing revisions and adjustments? And do you see different age ranges being capable of different levels of revision? Yeah, I actually think the younger kids are much more open to revision, especially with our private tutoring. Um, I think because we, Gretchen and I, uh, the high school that we're in is pretty competitive, or the high school Gretchen taught in. So the classes we have, the kids are, you know, they might be in like five AP classes or four AP classes. So the idea of writing something, and then you're like, hey, I want you to rewrite this, especially if it was handwritten. They're like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me, right? Where I would say with the younger students we're working on, it's a lot easier to rewrite something too when it's in a Google Doc and like make those suggestions. So I think one, it's like a handwritten versus a, a type thing makes a big difference. Um, I also think that it really depends on the student. I, I see it the most with college essays. Um, I helped a lot of students with their Common App application. I always show them like exemplar text and I show them like a wide range. Like here's a really like kind of formal standard uh, college essay. Here's kind of like an out of the box one from when William & Mary was seeking these kind of more creative style essays. And it's really a range. You have students that are like, hey, this is how I write. Can you just look at this? Tell me if, like how my grammar looks. And then you have kids that are really waiting for you to kind of tell them what to write, which, you know, obviously we don't do. So I think it's it's really um, a comfort level with the students of like how comfortable they are with their own voice with writing. Um, but it, I think the fun for Gretchen and I is that we're secondary school teachers, but to tutor younger students online. And a lot of the kids we work with are tagged gifted in uh, language arts. So they don't really get that extra push in school. So I think to be able to get that extra push online and to be doing like middle school level work when they're in like fourth or fifth grade is something that's really new for them. So that's exciting for us as writing teachers. Um, but I, I really think it depends on the kid and it depends on, on the grade and kind of the platform that we're working with them in. Definitely. I also believe that, you know, and it's hard for me as both an editor and a writer as well. But I think about every time I think I might be overstepping too much, I think about the times when other editors have edited my writing and it's removed my voice or done anything else. I had a piece published earlier this year that I had a lot of personality in it and they removed most of it. And it kind of sounded like some something that the Federal Reserve Bank would come up with. <laughs> I was like, I'm not the Federal Reserve Bank. This is gross. And I was like, I'm not going to be gross. So what I would normally do is if I had a question or wanted a kid to generate something else that was still in their own voice, asking them questions and telling them mm -hmm. write down what the answer was um, or asking them, imagine if your mom or dad, guardian, whoever else asks you the dreaded question, what did you do in school today? But imagine what it is about your writing, like what they would keep asking about your writing. Imagine if you actually had to answer that question and you couldn't just say nothing and you had to have, you had to put something, then what would you actually put? 
uh, to fill in those blanks there. And another thing that is great is when I pick up on certain sections, like each student as each person has a different style of writing. It's like a fingerprint and you pick up on the things that they most commonly use and compliment them on, Hey, like this is really fun. And I can really see by you doing this, this, and this, that you're really telling a bigger story here. Well, what else can you add to this? Because this is done really well. And I think you should stick with this and just encouraging them to run with the things that are great and then patch up the other parts later, but really see how much you can pull out from that authentic voice. And then, as Meg said, showing them different examples, I showed some of my recent tutoring students some examples from Johns Hopkins. They had a list of winning essays for the application process. And even though a lot of these kids are applying to the specialty high schools, there's a lot of parallels they can see with college application as well, because it's basically the same exact questions of what's the hobby you love and, you know, explain all of this or something very general and broad that they could take anywhere. And you could very easily show them those different examples. Or I had a kid who wanted to talk about video games and basically the entire thing was, I really like video games. Video games are cool. I really like playing them. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to tell you something about myself. I'm a writer. I like to write a lot. Writing is fun. And I asked him, what have you learned? He's like, not much. I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do instead. And I gave him, him an idea of what kind of writing I do, what I've written about. And I'm like, and you do the same for me. You tell me, do you like to play RPGs? Do you like to play first person shooters? Do you like to play puzzle games? You need to tell me more about what's going on here or maybe something really funny that happened if you were like playing in an online setting. Just anything that keeps the audience engaged with what are you doing and what is unique to your own story that no one else could talk about. I, uh, Ken, I'm sure you have a, a question, but I just want to interject. I have to imagine in the small group tutoring makes this easier, but Ken, was writing not the last thing that you touched when you were doing grading? Like, yeah, so. I it is I I will prolong anything I will do any task before it comes to editing so then when you you come back and you're like hey let me give you this feedback it's weeks uh sometimes longer than that but right. uh, we'll say weeks for the 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 sake of the podcast like that feedback means absolutely nothing and even if that feedback comes the next day with a different mindset like I said with my fourth graders they had moved on. And so that's where I find I'm hoping for you that you have more success providing feedback and clearly more discipline and more enjoyment doing it than I do. But oh my goodness, kudos yeah. to you guys. Uh, I will say it's funny as, as we were talking here, I was already thinking about this. And when I first started teaching, I felt like I absolutely sucked at teaching writing. I didn't know what I was supposed to be teaching the kids. I didn't know how I was supposed to be working with them. And like you said, Matt, how to offer ideas, not just rewrite it for them. And as I progressed through my career, I actually started to love teaching writing because I felt like I started to realize what I wanted to focus on with students. It's when I started developing more of a student-centered learning in my classroom, when I was able to free up time. 
but I was still incredibly, uh, I, I was, I lacked confidence in whether or not I was doing a good job. And it was for what you just said, Matt, the grading. I mean, it is the worst part of, of being an elementary teacher is, is the, is grading the writing pieces. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never forget this moment. I had two students that were two years apart. They were sisters and the family was moving away and they were leaving the district permanently. And the family reached out to me and said that the girls would really love to have you and your wife over for dinner before we move. They moved up to Vermont. And so my wife and I went over there for dinner. And so now the one had just left fifth grade and the other student would have just completed seventh grade. And I was talking to the girls and, you know, I said, I really value your opinion. They, they were great, great students, great kids, great family, very mature. I said, tell me what I don't, tell me what I can do to be a better teacher. And obviously they liked me as a teacher. They invited me over to their house, but I said, I really want you to tell me what I can, what I can do a better job of. And so the one gave me, um, the, as the one was thinking, the other one said, well, you know, can I tell you things that I thought you did really well first? Sure. She was like, you are the best writing teacher I ever had. And I was waiting for them. And this student was very passionate about writing. I was waiting for her to tell me that's what I was terrible at. Right. And so I said, really? Because I thought that's what I was worse at. And she said, you helped me develop my writing so much because you spent so much time discussing my writing with me. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now that the official things that were graded and returned to her came back weeks later. Sometimes I may have never even graded some things. It just kind of like fizzled away. And I hope that the students would forget about it. But I did spend, I did carve out and spend a lot of time with conferences and quick checks and conversations with those students. And in that moment, it cemented for me that I'm going to continue to value that and also continue to allow sometimes not everything to be officially graded in writing. And so the validity of my report cards in writing, I can tell you there was not much to it, but I was confident from that moment forward, I was confident in the fact that I was providing the students with a valuable writing experience in my classroom because of those conversations and conferences. So one, I would just like your reaction to that idea. And two, can you give our audience some specific advice for exactly how to approach conferences with students and maybe like a upper elementary and then a a high school, you know, comparison, if there's a, if there's a big difference. Yeah. I mean, I think they need the same things. I think high school students are equally as nervous about their writing if they're doing the right thing, you know, and we go through these like ebbs and flows in our County, (laughs) like we weren't allowed to use formulaic writing after COVID. We really saw that kids needed that structure. Um, I just did a, analysis with them today. And I kind of gave them a structure and they're like, oh, this helps so much. So, and some kids, you know, obviously break the structure and don't need it. But in terms of feedback, um, I'm a huge fan of the conference, I, especially in, I have four sections of journalism this year. And I, my, I don't feel like I'm, I'm teaching in front of the room where like in English, I feel like you're more like in front of the room doing these mini lessons. And in journalism, there's definitely mini lessons, but it's much more of like a newsroom feel. Um, so it's, it's very different for me because it's almost my entire day, but it's just a constant flow of kids coming up and saying, Hey, Ms. Sheriff, what do you think about this? Or do you think this quote doesn't make sense? Or should I cut this? Um, so I feel like the best thing about the English classroom is that you build like 
tangible, like authentic relationships with kids because you're having real conversations as opposed to, uh, you know, I've taught other classes or had to do different um, like electives at different points where you're just teaching curriculum. And obviously you're trying to make connections with kids, but when they're sharing and they're writing about things they care about, sports they care about and athletes they care about, you know, that it just, it lends itself to really having authentic conversations. So whether or not teachers think they're good at writing conferences, I would still do them because at the end of the day, the grade doesn't matter, but you're going to build that relationship with the kid. And I tell them writing is one thing you're going to do no matter what field you go into, whether you're sending an email and you are an engineer or if you're a landscaper, whatever you do, like at some point in your life, you're going to need to write people. Um, so I, I definitely think if we can give them confidence um, in their writing skills, even though they might vary, that's a huge gift. Gretchen, what about you with conferences? I definitely, same thing of, I pretty much approach elementary and older students in the similar way where I have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with them about their writing. Um, and sometimes I would even ask them, okay, so before I take a look at this, I want you to write down on a sticky note, like three things you want to ask me, three things you think you did well, three things you think <laughs> you maybe didn't do as well and you're kind of struggling with. As long as they wrote down three things, whether it be questions or some sort of feedback about themselves or a question, anything along those lines, I wanted them to come up with that. Um, I would also, a lot of the times I, before even looking at their longer pieces, I would have them do daily journals. And as those journals would come in, I did them virtually, especially during the pandemic, I had to. But even when I came back from the pandemic, I did all of them within the online platform so that I could see what they were doing immediately. And often while everybody else was still working on their journals and they would come in, I would go through and read them super quickly, which I do read extremely <laughs> quickly to the point where, you know, my boyfriend was also um, an English major and got his MFA in poetry. And he looks at me and I've like read through a book within only a couple of hours. It's like a 500 page book. It's like, did you drink water? What what <laughs> happened between those points? I'm like, no, I don't think I did. And I just, you know, finished the book and he says, well, do you remember what it's about? Like, there's no way you can remember anything. And I'm like, oh, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, never mind. Uh, so if you do happen to be a fast reader, and even if you aren't, taking a few moments to look at some of the journals and seeing what the kids are writing, what they're doing, um, and do try to vary it up a bit, especially if you know, like, the same couple of kids are going to have something really funny. Just, like, move other students up first and kind of figure out um, where they are in their own writing process, what they can improve upon, and investigate further. Or that also gives you the chance, if they're stuck on something in their writing, to be like, well, remember when you wrote about this in your journal? Why... How about you add something about that in there? Like, that was really funny. That was really good. So conferences, I don't think, just have to be a one. Not, I mean, it never is a one-time thing, but a specific time. It can always be an active conversation where you are speaking to them about their writing or giving them compliments or feedback or something you think would be valuable to them. And that's what's so cool with Google, too, because kids that don't want to, like, come up and sit at my desk, they'll just say, like, hey, Sheriff, I'm going to share this with you. And so they might be across the room, but I'm in their Google Doc, and I'm like, hey, what if you add more here? Or what if you go and, you know, interview this person? I think they'd have a lot to say about the volleyball championship or whatever. So I think that's one way to kind of utilize the tech where you – it doesn't have to be a formal conference. It can just be informal, like, through a Google Doc as well. I, I think the, the ability to share a 
a document, like you said, was a huge step up mm-hmm. in revisions. And I, I leveraged it in two different ways. So I did something similar to like you were saying, Gretchen, I wanted them to come with something to my conference, my, my, my revision or my meeting with them that they hoped to gain or a question that they had. And so I actually had students complete a very, very, very basic Google form that I used the whole year. It never changed. It was just, I didn't even need their name because their email was there. Um, what status were they in? Was it first draft, second draft, final draft that they felt that they were in? It was just multiple choice. And then a box, what do you want Mr. Ehrman to help with? And so in the beginning of the year, they didn't really write anything valuable there. or They would write nothing. And then when I would, before I would meet with them, you know, this, this Google form would come in. That's my, I've just had the spreadsheet open and it was a list for me of who I was going to meet with next versus randomly going through my class list and having students come up and realizing that they weren't ready to meet with me. And that became a waste of time. And so I then also could take a couple minutes to read their writing because it was in a shared Google doc before they came to me. So now they're not sitting with me, mm-hmm. waiting for me to read, just sitting there wasting their own time. And as I met with them, I would even say, if they didn't write anything in that last question, I would say, hey, you know, next time, why don't, you could have said, I need help with my intro, or mm-hmm. I would give them advice of what they could have asked for. But the other thing I started doing with that Google Doc is as I gave them advice, I typed it in as comments on the document. Mm-hmm. And so I told my students, I said, you don't need to come and remember anything that I tell you. I'm going to put everything in here. I want you to evaluate. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Do you understand the question I'm asking you or the advice that I'm providing you? Because it, the reminder is going to be there. So you don't need to remember it, but you need to understand it. And so I, I really think that that helped with the value of that meeting and and the students gaining more from it and and honestly just knowing where to go from there. So as far as as far as this idea of revisions, where does where does the peer revision fit in for you? Do you have any strategies for how you successfully have students peer edit and not just turn into them finding where they missed a period and a comma and a, and a capital I? Yeah, peer edits can be a nightmare. I think it really depends where you are. And, and I'll also say, should we even be doing it? Let me let yeah, me add that so as well. I'm kind of, I mean, it's just like anything. Like if you asked me to go through and check your algebra homework, you'd be in really rough shape, right? So, I mean, I think for me, like my journalism students formed like newspapers on this project they're working on now. And they kind of identify the person that they know is going to be a pretty good editor. And they know the person that's like really good at writing catchy headlines mm-hmm. and things like that. So I do think there is a place for peer edits. I honestly feel like oftentimes it's a little bit more successful in like the higher level classes where the kids have um, a really strong foundation and they know uh, what they're looking for. I mean, we definitely use them at all levels, but it can be a little bit of a train wreck unless you show them what they're looking for. Um, Sometimes, again, just like I might grade just for, you know, sentence variety. I might have a peer edit where they're just looking for something in particular. I always make them go in suggesting mode in Google because it's also a disaster when they start going in and fixing things mm-hmm. that are yep. all incorrect. Um, but one thing I've moved to that I think is like a little more effective is I do something called a PQP. So it's praise, question, polish. So they tell something that they think that the writer did well. Um, it can obviously be like grammatical, but to be like content as well. Then they have to devise a question, which is really, really hard for kids to do. It's a higher level order thinking. So I think it's hard for them to come up with something that's actually like a solid question. And the last P is polish. So something that they think that person needs to look for in a revision. 
Um, and I have found that that feedback is much more effective than them just like trying to go through a Google Doc and, and look for things. And it's, it's also really challenging to grade a peer edit because their skill levels are so different. So um, yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on, on the level of student. But for me, when I have them look for something more specific, it's much more impactful. Yeah, I think what I did, I normally skip the peer edits unless a kid specifically wanted to, like, exchange with a friend. And I'm like, if you want to, like, let a friend look over it and see, you know, what kind of advice they can give, that's fine. But I was definitely, um, I had a lot more students who struggled with even feedback for their own piece. Like, they didn't even know where to start with their own. So what I would do instead is project an example of like none of the students' work, but either a really absurd prompt that I made or something I found on the internet that was funny and engaging enough that they would still follow along with it, but still had errors or still had like other problems with it. And what I would do is normally the kids that wanted to talk would raise their hand. It'd be the same exact kids wanted to raise their hand. However, I also had a lot of kids who had accommodations where they had extreme anxiety and they didn't want to participate in that way. I still gave them sticky notes. I gave them some other nonverbal way to respond. Um, even whether or not they did have the accommodations, I would say, you can either raise your hand, you can write it down on a sticky note. But if you write it down a sticky note, I need you to put your name on it so you can have some sort of participation points with it. Um, just so I know like who is engaging and who still has thoughts about it because a lot of the times the kids that aren't speaking up they still have a lot of great thoughts and in those moments you would finally be able to look through them and a lot of the times I would grab up the post-it notes shake them up a little bit and I wouldn't read the names aloud but I would say this mysterious person said this or this anonymous person said that um, and I would talk about like I think that's a really interesting observation I think that's really cool and then other kids would respond to that and say, yeah, I agree with that. And so it would be a way for kids to still engage and still have that feedback on there and learn about good writing versus not as good writing without necessarily being like, okay, Johnny, Caleb, go exchange your papers. And they both, you know, don't have anything to say or they're best friends. And they're just like, this was lit, man. Um, great job. And that's the only comment that you have on there. So. Um, that's what really helped me a lot was when I realized it's, it's not going to happen by themselves. I got to model it somehow. Um, and that's, that's the way that I went about it. Yeah. I think to your so, point about, oh, sorry about the personal narrative. Sometimes they don't want to share. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't want to necessarily share whatever that narrative is with somebody sure. else. Right. So that gets tricky too. I think it's different if it's like an analytical essay or something, but I think given the nature of whatever the assignment is, sometimes they don't necessarily want to share that out either. It's a, a great point um, because it's, it's vulnerable. It's, it's, yeah. it can be uncomfortable uh, whether it's the topic or the quality of the work, both of those can bring uh, struggles to kids. One of the things I was saying to, to my uh, coworker today was I kind of understand homeschooling. Not that I would want to homeschool, but the efficiency in use usage of time. And one of the things that I'm wondering is writing is often one of those, here's your task, get you started, they can go away, and then, you know, as long as they're motivated, come back and you check in in different phases, unlike some other instruction where it's, 
instruction heavy, practice heavy, um, and it might be more time required throughout the entire thing. How do you find you using your time with kids most efficiently in this smaller group setting that a is obviously this is you know a business so mm -hmm. you have to have a return on investment right, right. and the kids are either there because they need to get better for their future plans or their parents want them to be better for their yeah. future plans how do you find yourself maximizing that amount of time in a task where you're popping in and out so frequently um, and checking in. So we've kind of done a few different models, um, but we knew, we used to meet with kids one-on-one -on -one for 45 minutes and with the SLC, the small learning community, we meet for an hour. Um, so we, we kind of set it up honestly, like how we would in our classroom, we start with a warm up, So they're kind of coming in kids are usually you know, a couple minutes late. So they come in and a lot of these kids go to school together. So there's banter amongst them anyways. Um, and we have it set up. We have like a seventh grade class, an eighth grade class. So, um, and some of them don't know each other from school. So eventually they kind of get to know each other and they'll joke around with each other. But we do the warm up. Um, typically we do a mini lesson. Uh, we're going really back to the fundamentals. A lot of our students, um, grammar is not taught in isolation anymore um, for the most part where we are. So it's kind of embedded in like a reading writing workshop model. Um, so while there are awesome benefits, the reading writing workshop model, we're really seeing that kids don't have the foundational skills. So when we're saying things like, hey, you don't have a subject in the sentence, they're like, what's a subject, right? So we have really kind of gone back to the basics with um, a lot of that in this small group setting. Um, and then typically, and it's different every time, but we'll do the um, mini lesson, we might model something. Um, we then oftentimes will split them up. So we'll do like a breakout room. So like, there's only five kids. So three kids will go in one room and work on one task, two are in the other, working on the other. Um, and then sometimes like when they're working on their applications, they're working on them individually, we're conferencing, we're moving around, but we all have their, they have five Google Docs. We have their Google Docs open and we're kind of working with them um, in that way as well. We usually come back and have, you know, some type of closed down lesson. So it's different each week. We meet with them twice a week. So there's a lot of frequency with it. Um, and like I said, these students are in middle school and elementary school. We just go up to eighth grade with them. Um, but for the most part, they're pretty advanced with, with the lessons. So I think for them, they like it because they don't get that kind of feedback in school. Your, your teacher is not giving you tons of feedback on your Google Doc about your writing. It just It's not possible when we have 30 kids in a room in class. So um, so that's kind of our, our model right now. Everybody does it a little bit different. Gretchen, I don't know if you want to speak to how you do your class. I do in a very similar way, and I think I normally put them a lot of the times, I have a very quiet group, so most of the time I just put them in the individual breakout rooms and I hop in between every single one, but I'm also multitasking and putting comments on others as well. Like maybe give, give them a couple minutes before I barge in and give my responses first to give them time of like, hey, this is what I'm going to talk about when I hop in your room, or something along those lines, but I still do it in a very similar method, just... Oftentimes, right now, just with the group I have, um, not really like grouped or, or paired things for the time being, but I would imagine if I did have one, I'd do exactly what Meg would do and like put them in little groups or do more like group oriented activities. But for the most part, they just kind of all respond very casually and um, they open up a lot more individually and have those questions when there's not an audience um, I joke with them, like, I love teaching the alphabet because they have all their cameras off. And so it's just 
their initials on there. So I'm like, all right, the alphabet's here. Love it. Um, right. And I do think so. in, in that situation, we can do more of the peer edit, not like when they're applying to something, but if they're working on a narrative, we did memoirs this summer, um, because they are strong writers and we've taught those skills so they can give each other more feedback. So that's an environment where we've actually been able to do like true peer edits. So it's not like a massive classroom. Um, but so I think that's been really awesome. We, we really saw like a lack in soft skills as we came back, like I said, from the pandemic. So that was our push to kind of have these small groups of three or four kids uh, to really have like a writing community. So tell us more about, about your tutoring business overall, <clears throat> how it's, how it's grown and developed over the last few years and, and who you work with, uh, our audience, how they can work with you, whether their own children or students, just, just tell us a little bit more. So we used to be a full service tutoring business, and then I have three sons. So when they went to school, I went back to school with them. So we transitioned to just doing um, English and creative writing. Uh, before the pandemic, we had like a really large space that we uh, worked with students twice a week. We had about 50 kids that would come, um, and we did exactly what Gretchen and I are doing online, but we did it in person. Um, and then after the pandemic, we moved to the online platform like everybody else. And our families really like that flexibility. So we have kids in California. We have kids in Ohio. They're kind of all over. We have cousins. Um, so we offer one-on-one tutoring for all students between, we start at third grade. It's just a little bit tricky online with kids younger than that in our experience. Uh, and we go up through uh, 12th grade. And then um, the small group learning, like I mentioned, we work with kids um, in fourth grade through eighth grade in those small group classes. So you can go to our website and read about those. We run them four times a year. They run for 12 weeks. Um, yeah, so there's about five of us that do it. And it's really fun. We're all classroom teachers. So we're kind of in, in the midst of what they're doing in school. But then we love being able to have this time to work with them in a different platform. So why should students work with you? Is it to reach grade level expectations? Is it to excel in writing, to explore passion writing? Kind of what's that, what's that fit for students that you're working with? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I think different kids have different um, needs with what they're looking for with small group writing instruction. I think some parents were concerned that kids had learning loss during the pandemic. And I reminded parents, everybody's in the exact same boat. Um, so we do have kids that are coming to us for remediation. Like they just need more um, assistance in kind of getting to grade level, like you mentioned. And then we have kids who are accelerated learners where, you know, they're definitely on point with where they should be uh, grade level wise, but they want to uh, have a larger vocabulary. We have a lot of families where English is the second language for their parents, but our students are, um, you know, were born in the United States. So their parents might not necessarily feel that they can help with their language development. So they come to us just to get that extra um, help with reading and writing. Um, so it's kind of a mix. We have a lot of kids that come to us for college applications as well. It's just a huge, massive process in and of itself. Um, we work with kids navigating their college essays and, and supplementals and all that as well. So I think it's kind of a little bit of everything. It just depends on what kids need. But I think the most, I would say the, the best part about it is I think they get personalized attention, which as teachers, we always want to give. But when you have 150 students, you do the best you can, but it's just not always feasible. Um, like you guys were saying, sometimes those papers get to the bottom of the desk and it's not because you don't want to get to it, but there's a thousand other things that come up ahead of time. I definitely agree. Um, as someone who has always been strong at writing, you know, I was the one who had had the math tutor because otherwise it would have been a disaster Same. for my math grade. But I just remember, um, you know, I started my writing career truly. I sold my first story to an online publication when I was 20 years old. And I can't imagine what would have happened had I gotten even more one-on-one -on -one attention 
where that career could be now. Like I'm in a pretty great place, but um, just what you can do when you have that one-on-one attention and the mentoring I've received over the years from so many different people, whether that be professors or people I've worked with has been invaluable. Um, And so there's just a lot that can be explored with any kind of attention like that. I also think it builds confidence, right? Like we talked about, you have to be able to write in lots of different capacities. So I think when kids, um, they have to talk to us, right? Like it's just us and them. So I think it helps them with those soft skills. Um, I am an adjunct professor at a university here in town. And one of the first things I noticed with my college freshmen, they would not go meet with their advisor or, you know, go and talk with their professors during office hours. They were like, I'd honestly rather just fail than go and talk with them. It's terrifying. So I think I think a lot of what we do when we're working with kids is soft skills. We're teaching them how to how to communicate, how to talk, how to ask questions, which a lot of our kids need some extra help with. I think that's fantastic. So I want to jump into our exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Okay. So uh, Gretchen and Megan, you can you can fight over who gets to go first for each question. Okay. Question number one: What is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? I, I think just for me, I had just being seen, just speaking as great teacher and someone who is. Oh, we're crossing wires here. I think we're glitching. Yeah, go ahead, Gretchen. You're good. Oh, um, well, I was saying just as a teacher who has a disability, um, just the idea of being seen, because in all honesty, you know, I wasn't diagnosed until much later, um, but I could imagine what it could have looked like had I kind of had that representation. And so many kids come up to me and they're like, I never told anybody this, but, you know, I have autism. I also have Tourette's. I also have this, but I don't feel like I can share it because of these reasons. Um, But maybe one day I can because you, you have mentioned it. And so I think just the idea of being seen is so valuable to a kid. Like even if they learn absolutely nothing from me, just the idea that they are validated and they are just as important makes it a whole lot easier to pay attention to somebody because I, I remember when I was in school, it's like if, if a teacher didn't resonate with me, I was not listening. <laughs> I was very stubborn in that way. Yeah. And I would kind of say the same thing I was mentioning. I had an absolutely awesome uh, sixth grade teacher. She was so cool. And so ahead of her times in terms of like relationship building. Um, so for me, like when I start a school year, we do like a lot of games and a lot of like kind of getting to know you stuff. And I think the best compliment I ever had, a kid came back and said, Miss Sheriff makes you do all kinds of embarrassing things like sing karaoke and that. But when you leave this class, you're going to feel confident. You're going to be ready to go to the next level. Um, so I think the best thing, in my opinion, a teacher can give a student is confidence and the understanding that they have value in whatever they're pursuing. So the next question is related to the best piece of advice that you've received, um, and that could have come from a colleague, a supervisor, or even a student. You want to go first, Meg? You want to get a question? <laughs> oh, you're like, no, give it. <laughs> I do. I do actually have one. Um, and it was when I had just graduated from my master's program and I had actually gotten a gig as a long-term sub, um, for an English position. And I was just about ready to throw up because I was like, I'm so scared. And it was the work week beforehand. And the Latin teacher at that school um, said, you feel ready? I'm like, ha, 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 that's hilarious. No, I do not. And he said, all you have to do on that first day is make sure they feel safe and that they're fed. And then they go home. And that just kind of 
kind of melted away the expectations of like, I need to be perfect the first day or I'm terrible. And that really alleviated a lot of that anxiety with that. Um, and even thinking about even again, like with kids, of course you want to be able to push them to the next limit and be, let them be able to thrive. Um, but sometimes if there's just days where it's like super tough and things aren't happening, you've kept them safe. They've been fed. They feel loved. And that helps you go back to the things that are also important as well. Yeah. And I think for me, um, my mom's a teacher. Many of my aunts were teachers. So for me, I think the best advice I had was, was given was that you're never done learning. Right. So um, I've always tried to model for my own children and for my students that I've gone back to school a couple of times. Um, so I think it, we always have something to learn, even though we're, you know, I've been at this for 20 years, like I'm learning from my students every single day. And then I also try to learn formally to try to keep on top of, you know, our students are not the students we had 20 years ago. Um, so I, I definitely think to uh, keep an open mind and you're never done learning. I think those are great. So the next question talks about how the school year goes in waves and mm -hmm. you can obviously relate this to both of the tutoring as well as professional career, but the, the year goes in waves and, you know, things are fine. Uh, and then all of a sudden there are days, possibly weeks that you're just struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. What is something you think of that you could share with educators to help them power up through those moments of struggle? So I, when I first started teaching, like I mentioned, I was a provisional teacher and somebody told me to keep I think they called it like a smile file and it sounds super cheesy, but um, I keep like notes from students from like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And some of those kids, even when I read it, I try to like conjure up. I'm like, who was this person? All right. Cause we've had so many students through the years, but I think there's so much about this job that's hard and, and it sometimes feels like it's getting harder and harder by the day. Right. But I think to remind yourself that there's so few professions where you see a kid in a supermarket and you might've just seen them like 90 minutes before. And they're like, Oh my gosh, we should have right. And I'm like, we were together for like two hours. Um, but mm -hmm. I think just, you know, holding on to those moments that you really do make an impact. And a lot of days it does not feel like that. Um, but I think having those notes and having that handy on those days that you're ready to kind of hang it up is, can be really advantageous. I have a very similar file. I have um, not only notes, or cards from students from past years, but also um, screenshots in my phone from when they send me a Schoology message or something that's like super funny or cute as well to remember what keeps me going. And then I also have um, like different Instagram memories, Facebook memories, um, where I have like some kind of silly activity that they did. And I'm like, oh, that was super cute. And then you kind of remember like, oh yeah, like there's a lot of rewarding things that comes out of this. Um, mm -hmm. whether that be, I did like little Play-Doh monsters with them and they would come up with the silliest little things. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get through the next five weeks so I can do little Play-Doh monsters with them. <laughs> and, you know, even, you know, just that one thing, or even when I taught seniors, like being able to see them graduate mm -hmm. and then, you know, denying the fact, I'm like, I'm not crying. You're lying. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. And, you know, having the kids have the banter with you and some of the kids you didn't think even like, liked you or acknowledged you or like, can I please hug you? Right. I'm like, all right, fine. I guess my heart is going to shatter into a million pieces. Yes. <laughs> That's great. So it's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What separates the teachers who are the ones constantly seeking to change, innovate, and adopt new teaching strategies? So I love having student teachers mainly because 
they have like the coolest ideas, right? So they come in and I, during the pandemic, I had a student teacher for 17 weeks. Everybody else had to go to like these modules um, and she stayed on with me, but she did these like SEL check-ins and they were just, uh, just the way she set them up and there was a Google form. It was pretty basic, but it was really innovative for the time. It was before like SEL became like mandated in our state. Um, so I really, I think the best PD I've ever been on and what keeps me current, and we had something called Eyes on Instruction. So we went into other classrooms across the four high schools in our district and just watched, watched teachers and watched, um, you know, some of these exemplars. So I think the best way to learn really is by watching other people and, and like your podcast, listening to other educators who are trying new ways to reach our students. Our, our kids are changing quickly. And if we don't change with them in some capacity, I mean, some things need to stay the same, I'm guessing, right? But we need to kind of know who it is that we're teaching. And the best way to do that, I think, is to sometimes model people who are just coming out of education programs or um, innovative people in your districts. I definitely agree with that. And even going to conferences, even if they're only for a couple of days, I feel like every time I went on a conference, I felt so reinvigorated and had all these new ideas. And would I implement all of them? No, I definitely had ambitious ideas of like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to change this. And this is normally just one's enough. And to keep keep the routine that works for the kids, like as long as it works, you know, no need to reinvent the wheel if it's like still working with the kids and you're not incredibly bored of it. But then throwing in those little tiny bits there that really make things um, natural. What's that? <laughs> It's pouring down rain here. We're in like massive storms. That's gotcha. Usually it captures most of the, the video yeah, and audio. Just little locally. blank screens. Ken, do you want me to ask the last question? Uh, or should we wait? Well, yeah, let's wait. Okay. Do you want to text her? Megan and 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 what grade do you teach now? I am now a secondary instructional coach. Cool. That's so awesome. I work with our three middle schools and high school teachers. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. So what yeah, are you, is... are you for like a certain, like a curriculum instructor or are you working with okay, coaching? Just gen, just instructional coach. So awesome. any teacher, any grade level, any subject. <clears throat> it's been you fun. Hear me now? My... Yep. Yep. We got you into a conference. We got you like, literally, we're like, I'm out. Done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, went to a conference, I'm out of here. Let's do that. So I don't know if you want to start that answer again, just so we make sure we have it. Yeah, let's um, do that. Sure. But the question generally was about how to power, the, like the changing of the classroom for innovation, uh, new teaching strategies. How do they stay on top of that? Uh, so like Meg was saying, just keeping up with the trends, because kids do change every day, as as does humanity. Um, there's always something new that can be seen. There's always something that you can get ahead of, but I loved going to conferences, even if they're only like a day or two, just to hear other ideas from other educators. And sometimes I would even do, um, on occasion, karaoke, um, can't be done in, in every school, but the days where I could do it, where I was like, okay, there's no testing happening. Um, you know, let's see what happens and like challenge them to like a little karaoke duel um i would always win <laughs> i would be like all right caleb you're flat but that's okay and he was like no, no 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 no, we're gonna do this again so keeping them excited and like letting them know that like yeah i can also have fun but then 
going back to business as well to kind of like go back to routine because a lot of my kids especially as much as they were like i'm bored you did one thing different they're like why don't we have our journal i'm going to cry <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so we've enjoyed this conversation uh i know for an area of general uh discomfort um i appreciate your ideas and thoughts of how to transition really uh, a love of writing and an opportunity that we all have into, you know, a, a really powerful and, and impactful instructional kind of direction with kids. To continue that conversation, what is the best way for our audience to, to connect with you and follow along with the efforts that you are continuing to work on? So we have a website, uh, smartsolutionsva.com, um, and all, all of our information's on there. That's definitely the best way to keep up, obviously, on Instagram and Facebook and all the things. Um, yeah, so that, that would be the best way. And then Gretchen does her own writing, so I don't know if you want to plug that, Gretchen. Please. Sure. Um, so my portfolio site is at www.writinggales, so writing as in writing, gales is my last name, dot com. Um, it's straight to the point. It's where I do all my writing and other things and, um, everything that I've written so far that has my byline that I'm allowed to share and it's not locked under an NDA with different companies is presented on there from creative writing to more journalistic writing or things for content that's on there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. We will link up to both of those uh, on our show notes page, which can be found on our website at powereduup.com or just wherever you're watching or listening, you can scroll down and and see all that information. So Megan and Gretchen, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that it was extremely beneficial to teachers looking to approach writing or approach those ideas of conferences as, as well as learning about your um, your, your tutoring business that's available to, to students and families out there as well. So thank you for everything that you do to support students and support their, their writing pursuits. And Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? As we power down this episode, without a doubt, you guys left us feeling powered up. Thank you for your time and for our audience. We look forward to hearing uh, another great conversation uh, then. So stay well, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.